Well, this morning's scripture reading, it comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. So hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, Three sayas of fine flour, knead it to make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. He took curds and milk in the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? Abraham said, She is in the tents. So the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too incredible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this uh, story is it's about a question that's kind of smack in the middle of the story, which is where God asks Abraham, and sort of is asking Sarah by extension, is anything... Too incredible for the Lord. If you have the ESV, it says, is, is anything too hard for the Lord? I, don't, I like incredible a little bit better because the word there is not just referring to like something difficult, but something like wonderful and difficult. Right? In other words, it's not like God's going to perform an impressive magic trick and impress people. Like, look at the hard thing God did. But it's it's going to be something wonderful, something good that seems Impossible. And, and that's the question God puts to Abraham. Is there anything like that I can't do? Is there anything too incredible for the Lord? And my guess is like whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian, like you've gone to church, like we all know what the right, the right answer is to that question. Uh, you know, the Sunday school answer, it's like, is anything too incredible for the Lord? No, of course, like God can do anything. Or it's like we all know the answer to that question. And yet, like, don't skip over the context because the context is that God has just said a very old man and a very old woman are going to have a baby, right? And that's, that's where the question comes from. Can God, like God's like, can I not do that? And it's like, well, have you, I mean, most people that age don't have kids. That doesn't seem like a normal thing. So just, like, don't just gloss over the context. This, this isn't just a Sunday school question. God is saying, can I do the impossible? Can I give a child to a man and a woman who have no chance of having a child? Is anything too incredible for the Lord? And so we all we know the right answer. And yet, if you uh, if you live life long enough in this world, 
It's really hard to answer that question with a full-throated faith with no doubt. No, there's nothing God can't do. Right? Circumstances wear us down. Our hearts get worn down. They're faith-resistant. They live in a world where God at times seems distant, uninvolved, not present. Or if there is a God, like, does he want to help me? Like, does he, is he, interest, like, is he interested in me? And, and so this question, it's on surface level, it's like, well, yeah, God can do anything. And that you, like, you put it into your life. You think about what's, where you're at today, your life today, and what's in front of you, the things you're, you're facing, the things you're walking through. And, and God puts a question to those things. Like, is there anything God can't do? Is there anything too incredible for the Lord? And it's easy to respond the way Sarah did, which is to laugh and say yes. There are things God can't do. And so, I, listen, I want to be someone who, hear, like, I hear that question, is anything too incredible for the Lord? And I give a full-throated, passionate no. Like, God can do anything. But I need help getting there, and I bet you do, too. And so let's walk through this story and, and let it offer us the help that we need to get to that place of faith. Right, to get to that place where we say, like, whatever's in front of me, nothing is too incredible for God. He can do anything. And where the story starts uh, is that you have to be willing to wait. To get to a place where you say, there's nothing too incredible for the Lord, you have to wait for him. And so the first verse of the story, it sets the tone for what the story is going to be about, which is that the Lord appeared to Abraham. And so this story is about an encounter between God himself and Abraham. But Abraham doesn't quite know that yet. Right? We're told in verse 1, this is what's going to happen. Abraham, uh, what happens with Abraham is it's the heat of the day, which means in that day uh, you would work in the morning, and then when the, the sun would get to its, its full intensity, you would take a break and go find some shade and most likely have a little afternoon nap. So that's what Abraham's done here. He is, he's found the shade. He is asleep. He's having his afternoon nap. So first, uh, first point of application this morning is that afternoon naps are deeply biblical. I don't, not enough people are writing this down at this point. This is write that down, apply that, and, and live it today, this afternoon. Uh, so the, he's taking a nap. He's in, it's afternoon. It's the heat. And I think the reason why, you can, you, like, why it's pretty clear he's asleep is verse 2. Uh, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And so he's now, he doesn't see them come from far off. It's all, he's asleep, and all of a sudden, there's three guys right in front of him. And again, Abraham doesn't know that somehow the Lord is present in these three uh, strangers, but he does sense that there's someone unique, there's something unique happening here. And so he tells them, like, hey, let me, let me, I want to get some bread and some water. You're on a journey. Let me show you hospitality. Let me give you something to eat and drink. You know, take a break here under the tree. I'm going to go get some bread and water. Only Abraham, uh, they, they do that. They go under the tree. But Abraham doesn't just go and get bread and, and water. He goes, the first thing he asks is for Sarah to provide six seahs of flour, which is a, that is a ton of bread. Um, this is Olive Garden free breadsticks amount of bread. Okay, so they, they, you know you run out of bread. It's like bring more. Like, there's just plenty. There's not. They're not going to run out of bread. There's weeks of bread here that he wants to make for these guests. And then uh, he goes. He kills the uh, have a, has a calf killed. So we're having steak uh, now. There's curds available, and he goes and he sets this feast uh, before these three strangers. He he provides for them a a feast to eat. And so, uh, so they're there, they're eating, they're feasting, and, uh, and that's when, in verse 10, we, realize, we begin to understand what's going to happen. Uh, this is, God didn't just show up to have some steak. He's going to say something to Abraham, and what he says is this in verse 10. 
The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, I don't, like, we don't know how this is the Lord speaking, right? It's, somehow he's like physically manifested in a human being and is speaking to Abraham. Some people say oh, this is Jesus before uh, Jesus. We don't know. All we know is that it's not just a stranger speaking to Abraham. It's the Lord speaking to Abraham. And the Lord has said to Abraham, when I, I'm going to visit you again in a year and you're going to have a son. And so th- for five weeks now, we've been preaching about Abraham. All the way back to Memorial uh, Weekend, where Andrew preached on Genesis 12. And there Abraham was someone who didn't know the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible comes to him and says, like, I want you to, to do life with me. I want you to leave your fatherland. I want you to leave your place of security. I want you to come and do life with me. And, and God makes a number of promises to Abraham. And he's, one of the promises he makes is that he's going to give Abraham a child. And from that child, there will be descendants too many to number. And, and so this, like, this, a son, a child, promised to Abraham is crucial in Genesis 12 in order to, for Abraham to take up life with uh, God. And now it's been, it's been six chapters in Genesis, right? Genesis 12 through 18, we've preached no son. Abraham has done a lot of things in that time. It's about 24 years of his life has passed. No son. So think about that. God says to Abraham, Go leave everything, and I'm going to give you a son in 24 years. No son. And then one day, Abraham's asleep, and the Lord shows up. He wakes up. It's there, and God says, in a year from now, you will have the son. And he puts a timeline on it. But here's the the thing. Like 25 years, Abraham has to wait and if you, are, if you have any interest in the God of the Bible at all, you will have to wait for him. Uh, this time last week, I was in uh, Kings Canyon National Park, which means last Sunday I woke up uh, in mountains. And, and it, was, it was fun being there because the last time I was there, uh, it was, I was 2006. I was 23 years old. Um, at that point in time, I, uh, I was thinking about... Uh, dating this girl named Misty, wondering if she might be interested in me, and, you know, could we get married? She's now, uh, she's, you know, she's, now we have four kids, we've been married. Um, but, but we were exchanging emails, and also I was, I was with two friends um, as well, both of whom were, were Christians, and it was clear, like, we were both at a very similar place in our own lives, kind of early 20s. You know, we had grown up in the church, and yet we had some real, like, existential questions, uh, what, like, you know, doubts, things in the Bible that, like, didn't make sense to us, that kind of troubled us, um, I just remember, like in that, like in that time with those three guys, um, just having conversations where it was clear that that we were just in very different places, and that I had just I had just finished a class on the Book of Job in, in a, from a seminary, and what I found so interesting, and that that book really like it rocked and changed my faith in so many ways, because what was clear was like God sort of moved in that class from this friendly, you know, this friendly being who's going to do whatever I need for him to do for me, for my life, to this being who, like, might totally ruin my life and go years without explaining uh, anything to me until one day there's an encounter. That, that's the story of Job. And so the sense of, like, God does it, like, God is just different. He doesn't just provide answers right away. He's not interested in a relationship where he does everything I need for him. And my other two friends were really, they were struggling with, like, a God like that who doesn't answer your questions right away, who, who leaves you in tension and doubt and and uncertainties. They, they just weren't comfortable with that. And so in many ways, they were on their way out of Christianity, and I was in my way to a very different view of Christianity and, and the faith. And I think about the last time I was there, 13 years ago, and how much of, of 
my Christian life, my process, my life with God is just really slow and requires a lot of waiting. And so this, like, if anything, is anything too incredible for the Lord, the only way you're ever going to get to a place of faith is, if you understand, you're going to have to wait for God. And that's the first question is, like, can you wait for him? Will you wait for him? Part of why I was processing this, I'm reading a book uh, now called Invitation to a Journey, which uh, it's you know, sort of an explanation of, of what it looks like to take up life with God, what a journey in the Christian life looks like from the moment you become a Christian to the moment you meet Jesus and you become perfect like, like him. Like, what, is that, what does that journey look like? And he, the first chapter of the book, the first point he wants to make is that, like, listen, like, people don't understand the spiritual journey. Is a, it's a process. It takes a long time. You have to be patient. Uh, the primary reality of Christian spirituality is that you're responding to God. You're not in charge of the process, right? You're not in charge of your own training. It's response to God, and it may take a while. It may be, it's a slow thing. And it's interesting because he's like, and this is really hard for our culture because we are an instant gratification culture. And so that, an instant gratification culture doesn't go well with following Jesus because Jesus is an, he's not an instant gratification God. And here's the illustration. He wrote this in 1992. And so here's the illustration he uses. He's like, you know, when you're at a vending machine, and you put the money in, and you push the button, and the thing doesn't come out. It's like, just watch people get angry. That's just proof. We're just such instant gratification. We can't wait for a thing from a vending machine. I just, like, I read that and laughed, because that's 1992. Now, fast forward to 2019. Like, through Amazon, I can buy literally anything in the world and get it to my house that day. Right? It used to be prime two-day shipping. was like, this is amazing, two days. Now, if I'm on Amazon and it's not same-day shipping, I'm like, what's, what's their problem? Like, what's the deal? This is unjust. This is wrong. I should be able to buy anything and have it to my house by the end of the day. Like, that's, that's where we're at now. It's not, you know, did my Snickers bar come out when I push the button? It's now, like, can I buy some weird, obscure book that I, only I care about and have it delivered to my house at the end of the day? Like, we live in an instant gratification culture. And so much of what makes spiritual life difficult in this uh, in this world, in our context, in our culture, is that God, he's not like that. 24 years, Abraham waits. No timeline. No, God, here's when, it, here, we'll do it, we'll do it and then, right? It's, well, after this, then, we'll, no. Abraham has no idea when a son is coming. And finally, one day, 24 years later, he's napping. God shows up, wakes him up and says, okay, now I'm going to do what I said. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard, but it's, it's like, it's humorous. But you have to be willing to wait for him. And I wonder how many of us in this room, could God even take us on a 25-year journey? How many of us would have the patience for him, would trust him through, through that much? And so I like the way uh, Mulholland, uh, who wrote this book, Invitation to a Journey, he explains the journey of the Christian life. Here's what he says. So when spirituality is viewed as a journey... The way to spiritual wholeness is seen to lie in an increasingly faithful response to the one whose purpose shapes our path, whose grace redeems our detours, whose power liberates us from crippling bondages of the prior journey, and whose transforming presence meets us at each turn in the road. Right, and so much what's happening here is like God just shows up in a unique way for Abraham finally. But it, there's, there's detours in the Christian life. It's defined not by me taking a hold and progressing from step to step and getting better. and be it, It's a response to God's work in my life. And sometimes he moves very slowly. Is anything too incredible for 
the Lord? The only way you get to answer that question full of faith is if you're willing to wait for him. And this is a theme, even though we, I think we live in an instant gratification culture that struggles with this, like the Bible and waiting, it's all over the place. And one of the, the most central prayers to my own life right now is, is Psalm 40. Um, and, and what I love about Psalm 40 is that it begins with waiting on the Lord. And if you have the ESV, the first verse is translated, um, I waited patiently for the Lord, which makes it like that. It's, that's right, but it's like, it makes it sound like you know, precious moments, like oh, I was waiting patiently. And gotcha. That's actually not what's in the Hebrew. What's in the Hebrew is uh, it's the word wait back to back. It's I waited, waited for the Lord. And it's meant to show like intensification, like, like I, this is the way Eugene Peterson translates it, and I think he gets it right. He, he, uh, he translates Psalm 40 like this. He says, I waited and waited and waited for God. At last he looked. Finally he listened. He lifted me out of the ditch, pulled me from the deep mud. He stood me on solid rock to make sure I wouldn't slip. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And so there's this movement from this waiting to a song. But you have to be willing to wait and wait and wait for God. For 24 years, Abraham has waited for this. And what's it like, you know, it doesn't show up because Abraham got, you know, he figured something out and he got, he got a hold of God's attention. No, God shows up while he's napping and says, okay, now it's time. That, that is, a, I think, a perfect image of what life with God is like, is you wait and you wait and, you wait and then he's there. So one, wait for him, that's, that's first. But second is you have, to, you have to be willing to listen to him. And so God says in the midst of this feast, okay, a year from now when I come back, Sarah's going to have um, a son. And we're told that's, that Abraham and Sarah were advanced in, in years. And this was a polite way of saying that medically speaking, Abraham and Sarah, neither one could have children at this point. Physically, like, this is impossible to, to happen. Um, and so, like when, yeah, like, when God asks, well, is anything too credible for the Lord? It's like, well, yes. There are some things that feel like, well, this isn't going to happen, right? And this is one of those things. And, and so that's why Sarah says, she, what happens is she laughs at the prospect that she would have a child. And I want to be careful because, again, like, I think Sarah, it's really easy to look at Sarah and be like, how could she not believe? And it's like, well, okay, but... How many of us, if, if someone who was, you know, let's just say advanced and mature in age and is a woman, and she came and said, you know, God told me I'm getting pregnant, we'd probably look at her like, yeah, you may need to laugh at that a little bit. Like, have some cynicism of that, you know, whatever God said to you. Um, so, like, it's, it should not, we shouldn't jump on Sarah um, necessarily. Um, and, and even more than that, if you live long enough, like, you're going to relate to this, this cynical laugh of Sarah, which is, is, right, like, God had his chance so many times to do this for me. It's been 24 years. He could have done this so many times. Now he's gonna. Now he shows up. That's where her heart is. And if you take up life with God, it's not hard. To, it's it's easy to get there. And so uh, in verse 13, uh, Sarah, who's remember she's in the tent, not with the meal with Abraham and the three strangers. She's off in the tent. She laughs. She says, "This can't happen." And then, uh, and then God looks at Abraham. Somehow, again, three strangers. God looks at Abraham and asks, "Why did Sarah laugh?" Right? And, and God goes, is anything too incredible for the Lord? Remember, Sarah's off in, you know, she's in the tent. God overhears her entire internal monologue. And, and Sarah hears what she said, what, what the Lord says, and comes in and says, no, no, I didn't laugh. And then this part of the narrative ends with God looking at her and saying, no, you did. 
It's like, I want to know what happened after that, um, right? Because it's like, it's this like tense moment. I think, again, like, I, I don't think what's happening is God's, you know, saying, Sarah, how dare you, right? How dare you not believe you can get pregnant? I think what's, first God asked the question, why did Sarah laugh? And, and a question's always an invitation, right? It's not, a, it's not a rebuke, it's an invitation. God's inviting Sarah out of cynicism and laughter and unbelief and into faith and into belief and into trust, so Sarah takes up that invitation, and, and where it all starts is that, that she, she's listening to the voice of the Lord. She's listening to his voice and no one else's. And so if it, to get to the place where, like, there's nothing too incredible for God, like, you have, like, what did he actually say? What is his voice actually revealed? What does he actually promise? Not what you hope he might say or what he, uh, you, you suggest he might say. Well, what has he actually Said. And here's what's important, is that God has repeatedly promised to Abraham a child, a son, to them, like specifically to Abraham and Sarah. And so, uh, so you know, as we leave this place, you know, the application point isn't, hey, man, anyone can get pregnant tonight, like, be careful. Like, that's not the application point at all, because this is a specific promise of a child to Abraham and Sarah. So this is not God saying, anyone can get pregnant anytime, I decide. That's not, what, that's not what's happening. Um, instead, it's the specific promise to Abraham and Sarah. God's saying, I'm going to fulfill this. This is a specific promise to a specific couple. And so the question then becomes to us, what are the promises we, like Abraham and Sarah, are to believe and to listen to and to grab onto with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Right? What has God promised us? And Paul meditates on this in Romans uh, 4. He, uh, he meditates on the fact that Abraham and Sarah believed a promise, and because they believed that promise, they, like, they were saved. They knew God. And uh, Paul, he writes this, Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18. He's in hope he believed, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I love that. So Abraham, God's promised Abraham and Sarah a child. And here in Genesis 18, God has said, I'm going to give you this child. And Abraham is like, well, I look at my body and this thing is it's dead, basically. right? This thing's not producing any children. My wife, her womb is barren. And yet God promised me this. It will happen. And Paul says that's the model for you and me, is that God makes a promise to us. And even though we look at our own selves, our own strengths, our own abilities, then they're all as good as dead, we believe God's promises to us will, will be true. He will be true to those promises. And so that becomes, okay, so what are the promises to us? That we, because it's not, we're all going to have a son, right? That's not the promise made to us. What are the promises made to us? And Paul goes on in Romans 4, and he says, just like Abraham and Sarah believed that they were going to have a son, despite their, their bodies could not do that, so, despite a world that makes faith so difficult for us, here are the promises we are to believe. Here's what Paul writes, Romans 4, 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So there's lots of theological words in that. Here, like, there's three promises there for us. The Paul says, like, live off of these promises. One, that in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Two, is that you, like Jesus, will be raised from the dead. And thirdly, you will be made whole. Perfect. Three promises. You are forgiven in Jesus Christ. 
you will rise from the dead just like Jesus did and you will be made whole. And we live in a time uh, when it's really trendy in American culture like to speak truth to yourself. That's kind of like a phrase that gets, gets tossed out a lot. And it's, it's made its way into the church, right? Speak truth to yourself. And, and listen, I'm, I'm going to get nitpicky for a minute. And I'm, just, I'm acknowledging that. I'm going to step on some toes. But I hope, I hope you hear me out because what, what's happened with that speak truth to yourself idea is we typically don't latch on to the promises of God made to us in the New Testament. We, we tend to like, like grab something else that's like 50% true but 50% not and grab that as the truth that we speak to ourselves. And it's very different than the gospel. Right? So an example, and I, listen, I'm nitpicking, just take this with a grain of salt, but one of, the, one of the songs I hear frequently on Christian radio, it gets to a point where it says, God says to us that we are strong even though that we think we're weak. Uh, which is like, that's kind of not the gospel. The gospel isn't, um, I'm a strong person, even though this, the gospel is actually uh, like Abraham. I look at my body, it's as good as dead. Um, and yet God sends Jesus to forgive my sins, to make me whole, to rise me to new life. And it's like, is there anything with, wrong with saying to myself, you're strong, you're strong? Well, no, like, no, except for the fact that most of us really aren't. And when you begin to speak a truth that's actually not, like, not true and not supposed to be true, it becomes a, condom, a message of condemnation, not grace. Why aren't you strong? Why are, get, act better. Like, get, act stronger. Like, right, it's, and it sounds true, it sound, it's, but it's, it's not the promise God has made to us. God has not looked at you and said, you're strong. He's looked at us and said, you need forgiveness. You need to be made right, put back whole together. And, and you need, you're going to die. You need to be raised to new life. And he is... He has sent Jesus to make those promises to us. And let that be the truth we speak to our, ourselves, right? That we listen to his voice, his promises, his words, and nothing else. And the truth we speak to ourselves is the truth he, truth he has spoken to us and the promises he has made to us. Because if you're willing to do this, you'll go on the same journey that Sarah did, which is Sarah, she's in a place of cynicism and unbelief now because it's like, how can my body have a baby? And, and yet you read three chapters ahead, she has a child. In Genesis 21, here's what, what we read. What happens when Sarah has her child, has her son? Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac, laughter, that's his name, Isaac means laughter. Abraham was 100 years old when his son laughter was born. Sarah said, God has blessed me with laughter. <clears throat> and all who get the news will laugh with me. What was a laugh of cynicism and unbelief has become a laugh of faith and joy and gift. Listen to his voice, not your own. Let him speak truth over you, not your own, not our own made-up stuff. Speak or listen to his truth. And the promises he's made to you, see, if you come to him in Jesus, he will forgive everything you've ever done wrong. Right? Which is way more powerful than you're strong, right? It's everything you think that like, would make God look at you and say, I, you know, I can't, uh, enough. God specifically made a promise to you that says that you, there isn't a place where I'll say that to you. Your sins can be forgiven. You will be made whole. You will rise from the, the, God has made those promises to you and many more in Scripture. Listen to him. Is anything too incredible for the Lord? Well, no, right? But the only way you're ever going to answer that is if you wait for him, one, if you listen to him, his voice, and thirdly and finally, and this is going to be weird, uh, but it's eat with him. This is the only time in all the Hebrew scriptures where God, like, somehow physically shows up on earth and eats with people. 
And yeah, like that raises lots of tensions. I'm not going to uncover any of those. It's like, but that's, that's what's happening here is the God of the Bible is depicted as taking on human form and eating with people that he care about, Abraham and, and Sarah. Let's just pause on that. Like God is not some distant God in heaven. He's a God who desires to eat with you. And if you trace the theme of God eating with people through the Bible, it's a really interesting storyline. Right? It starts here in Genesis 18. In Exodus 24, when uh, the people of God are given the law, so right, I think Ten Commandments uh, movie, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. Um, right? At that moment, we, we read this about God, is that God um, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, but they beheld God and they ate and drank. In Isaiah 55, the prophet, speaking to a people who have ran away from God and, and rebelled against God, doesn't say to them, how dare you, um, although some of that is in Isaiah, but, he, but God is inviting them back into life with him. And here's the language used, that God wants the people to come back into life with him. God says through the prophet Isaiah, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Right? So in other words, God's saying, listen to me and eat my feast, eat my food. Right? I want to eat with you. That's the invitation God gives. And of course, you move even further into the Bible storyline. And God, for a second time, it's a Genesis 18, like takes on human flesh right, enters into our world through Jesus. And one of the primary things that Jesus does with people in his earthly ministry is he eats with them. And in fact, he does that so much, the religious people of his day called him a glutton and a drunk because he was known for wanting to eat and drink with all kinds of people. But beyond that, one of my favorite moments with, uh, in this, Jesus, he's eating and drinking with uh, some of his disciples and friends. And the religious leaders go up to him and they're like, what, like, today's a fast day, right? All the Jewish people are fasting today. But Jesus, you're eating with your disciples. You're breaking the rules. How, could you, how dare you do that? And Jesus' response in that moment was, listen, when I, I'm going to go away soon, and then it's right for people to fast. Then it's going to be right for my disciples to fast. But when I'm with them, this is my translation, when I'm with them, it's time to eat. I and mean, that's what Jesus says. It's, when I am present, it's a feast, not a fast. Right? Like, core to Jesus' identity is that we eat with him, not that we fast. And then later in John 21, when Peter has, has denied Jesus three times, and he's, he's on the outs with the disciples and with the way of Jesus, and, and Peter's out fishing, and Jesus shows up to him, resurrected, and he calls Peter to the beach. And you know what he does for Peter? He cooks him breakfast, cooks him fish, feeds his disciples, and welcomes Peter back into his, his family. And then in Revelation, at the end of all time, the way that the end of the world is depicted to us is, is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a wedding feast. That's how Jesus is going to meet us in person for the first time. It's a feast. It's eating with Him. Is anything too incredible for the Lord? The only way to get to a place of faith is to eat with Him. And there's two ways to think about that. One is, right, obviously, like, figuratively, it's like you need to, like, engage God in the way you would with someone over a meal, right, through prayer, through Bible reading, like, listening to Him, engaging Him relationally. When we sing, singing uh, to him. So there's that, that's one side of it, and that's all important, but I want to focus in. This is going to be the easiest application sermon of all time. That we, that's why every Sunday we take communion. Like the only application today is, go to, is to eat communion with Jesus. And I know like this, is, uh, this might not make sense to you, and it's okay if it, if it doesn't, um, but the, the one non-negotiable I had when we started Shawnee four years ago, um, for any of us who were involved in sort of making those decisions early on, 
I said, listen, you know, I'll give on a lot of things, but I will die on the hill of communion every week. Right? And I might die on that hill, you know, so, uh, but I was like, we, we're going to take it every week. And it's not because I think like, you're morally superior if you take communion every week. And if, like, don't read any of that. All, all I can tell you is in my own life, one of the things that I believe, and I, listen, I mean this, um, one of the reasons why I believe I'm a Christian and through, you know, since the day I was baptized into the church 26 years ago to today, one of the reasons that has, has kept me in, kept me waiting, listening to God, is that every week I'm, I'm invited to his table. He wants to eat with me. And I, like that is drilled into me every week. And so that's the easy part of the application. The hard part is like when you're, you know, when you're, when you do that infrequently, right? When you're not here that often or when you're not around the community of people, you're not at the table very often. I think that like that's, that makes faith hard. It makes doubt easier. But there's something about this table that has reminded me week after week, Tim, you're forgiven. You're dying, but I'm going to raise you to new life. I'm going to make you whole. And, and I'm reminded at, at, at that by all of those things at his table, at his invitation, which he gave his life to get me there. And some, for some, somehow over 26 years, that, that message has, has like worked its way more internally to me through the eating of this meal week after week after week than, than many other things. And so it's why we do this. It's why we come to this meal that he invited us Two, right? It's his body that was broken for us. If, you, if you're not sure God is going to forgive you, the answer is not to, to try, it's to come to this table. His body was broken for you. If you wonder, will God make me whole? Well, his blood was shed for you. If you wonder, uh, will I rise from the dead? It's like we're, we're at a table of a guy who like barely traveled anywhere, barely anyone knew, who was not influential, and yet he's now the most powerful and known person in the entire world. And the only thing that can explain that is that he came out of a grave three days later. And so every week we come back to this table. His body was broken. His blood was shed for you. So we start with this question, is anything too incredible for the Lord? We all know the Sunday school answer to that, right? No, God can do anything. And yet we all, we struggle to believe it, right? To live with this expectancy, God is going to show up. He's going to be there for me no matter what I face or go through in life. And that is a question that's not best asked in a sermon. It's not best asked in a small group, in a Bible study. That, that question is best asked over a table, over a meal. A meal where he serves you through holes in his wrist, a pierce in his side, wounds from the crown, on, uh, wounds from a, a crown of thorns on his head. And he looks at all of us and he says, I forgive you. I will raise you to new life. I will make you whole. Now let's eat. Uh, so we're going to do that now. We're going to take communion. Um, if you're in the way of Jesus, if you're following Jesus, we, we invite you to his table. Uh, you don't have to be a member of our church uh, because it's uh, his table, not ours. Uh, come in groups of five to seven, take the bread, dip it into the juice, um, eat it together with the instruction of those who are serving you. If you need gluten-free, it's available on this side of the room. Um, but I'm going to pray for us, and, and then as you're ready, we invite you to, to come to his table if you are in, uh, in faith with him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you do not just call us to believe. You, you call us to come and meet you at your table. And in a world where it's just there's so much that just feels like you can't do, uh, we come to a table and we're reminded it was at a cross that eternal life and salvation and grace and kindness and goodness was won for humanity forever. 
And if you can do that out of the cross, God, what's ever in front of us, who knows what you can do. Nothing's too incredible for you. And yet we need help believing that. And so we come to your table. Um, we come to your table in faith that you will take the circumstances of our life and bring out of them laughter, salvation, grace. God, do that this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.